money is just this abstract thing that you exchange for the stuff you care about. So if you replace the word money with the words, the stuff you care about, it's probably logical that it would lead to some amount of happiness. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. I'm glad you're joining us this week as we had a fantastic guest. Who was our guest this week? His name is Dr. Robert Biswas Diener. Before we get into this fascinating episode, I want to remind everyone, if you're enjoying these episodes and the guest, please head over to the Most Hated F Word podcast on the Apple Podcast app and leave a review. I'd really appreciate it. So who is Dr. Robert Biswas Diener? Well, he's widely known as the Indiana Jones of positive psychology. Why, you may ask? Well, his research has taken him to some pretty interesting places like the northern tip of Greenland, various parts of India, Kenya, Israel, and more. It was such a treat to talk to Dr. Biswas Diener because I've read so many of his articles, his books over the past couple years, and to speak to him in person was really it was really enjoyable. He's such a nice individual who's willing to share his work and his work. Wow. What can I say? He has over 60 published academic articles and two of those articles have been cited over a thousand times. So safe to say that people enjoy his work. He's also offered authored seven books and towards the end of the episode, he talks about how he would recommend the, one of his books, Happiness, Unlocking Mysteries of Psychological Wealth, as a book that would fit well based on our conversation. He also has a really good book, before I get on to the episode I want to mention, that I read recently that I found extremely fascinating. This is called The Upside of Your Dark Side. It was a New York Times bestseller. I highly recommend that book as well. So what are we talking about? Well, he's done a lot of work on happiness and income. And we jump right into what is happiness. And Dr. Biswadiner does a good job explaining what the scientific research shows us on how we can experience more moments of happiness. How when we look at achieving happiness by itself, we actually can become unhappy. And we talk a lot about income and happiness. Does money buy us happiness? We talked a lot about different research that has been cited and Dr. Bizwa Diener does a really good job making us understand the correlation based on his perception of happiness and money. We dive into some of his fascinating research such as when he went to Calcutta, India to study people in terms of happiness and money. I encourage everyone to go over to robertdiener.com. You'll see his articles, what he's up to, and really grab a copy of his book, Happiness, Unlocking Mysteries of Psychological Wealth. It is a fantastic book. As I mentioned, it was a treat. It was an honor to have Dr. Bismar Diener on the show, and I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation. Does money buy happiness? Enjoy. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to be here. Yeah, I'm very excited to have a conversation with you. We were just chatting before we started recording, and a lot of my work in the past has been around money and income. As of late, I've had this keen interest in the link, if any, to happiness and also what is happiness. So I feel like you are positioned very well to have this conversation. And before we go into it, I just want to acknowledge your father, because I understand this year he passed away. And I just wanted to acknowledge the tremendous contribution. We've read so many of his papers in our studies and, of course, yours. But what his impact in the world of psychology, positive psychology, and the world in general, I'm sure. As I read, he was known as Dr. Happiness. 
And uh, I'm sure he's created a lot of happiness for many people. So just want to acknowledge him. Thank you. It's very kind of you. So we've heard about many different opinions. Some are backed by research, some aren't. But one of the most famous ones is money provides happiness up to a certain point. We've been cited this $75,000 mark, which according to the specific study, evidence fades as income rises above the 75000 And I think many people take this interpretation in many different ways. So I, I want to kind of put that down. And the other one that I often have conversations around is Elizabeth Dunn and Norton's research on what you spend your money on really matters. And they have five things, but this idea of what you spend your money on matters. And then some newer research that people are showing and talking to me about is saying, no, this is all wrong. If you link it towards your personality styles, and spend money on things that resonate with your personalities. Joel Gladstone has a paper that talks about this, that your happiness can increase when you put it towards things that match your personality styles. So we have this 75,000 max. It depends actually what you spend your money on, or you know, there's no cap as long as you spend it on your personalities of choice. So based on your experience, based on your research, and maybe it's a hybrid of all, or maybe it's a different thing, does money buy happiness? And can you first start with what is happiness anyhow? You have asked a bunch of questions. I did. I'm sorry. You can fill our entire time. I haven't been thinking about this interview at all. Yeah, each one of these in turn. So yeah, let's start with happiness. And then before we get into the 75,000 or anything, let's just answer the big question, does money buy happiness? Because it's a really great question. But what is happiness? I think that is a, a really foundational place to start. I don't have a monopoly on the truth where happiness is concerned. You know, I'm not sitting on top of a mountain waiting for people to come up and ask me, what is happiness? So that I can write down the definition. Happiness is sort of what you think it is, right? Happiness is feeling good, the enjoyment of life. It contains a little bit more than that. For some people, it, it might be future directed, like oh, I also feel a little optimistic, kind of feel capable. I feel connected. I feel at peace. You know, I think it's kind of all of that stuff. It's probably a subjective feeling, whether it's a sense of meaning that you get from work or pride you get from watching your kids. Those are all feelings, right? Those are sensations that exist within us. So I think of it just sort of like this internal mental thumbs up, you know, it's like kind of this big like yes to life kind of experience. Probably some of it has to do with your emotions. Probably some of it has to do with your cognitive processing or the way you think. We would say that about anything. I generally think that when we go about the business of measuring happiness, that's kind of the approach we take. We don't say like, oh, we just know our one thing and that's what we're going to measure. We ask people all about their feelings, their good feelings, their bad feelings, a whole range of feelings. We ask in different languages. We ask what you're thinking about, how connected you feel, how much meaning. We, We ask about all of it. And we use different methods for that. And we kind of triangulate what we think is a pretty good sense of an individual's happiness. So you talk about like what people are feeling if they have meaning. If there's a lack of feeling good or feeling joy, and maybe there's more of a feeling sad, scared of what people might associate with negative emotions, does that mean someone's not happy? Well, not necessarily. Everyone experiences so-called negative emotions. And we don't mean something judgmental about negative. Right, we, yeah. we largely just mean unpleasant. No one's scolding a particular set of emotions. So you felt negative emotions today. Maybe it was boredom or irritation or frustration, fatigue. I don't know, some, something that probably felt a bit icky. The people listening have, I have. And we all feel that stuff each day. Happiness isn't this sort of blissful state where we can't have lack the capacity to ever be sad or ever be angry. We want to feel those things because those are appropriate reactions to real world events. We just don't want to feel them a lot. And we don't want to feel them in an enduring way. So if you were irritated this morning and you're still just as irritated about that thing, I would say maybe that irritation has gotten under your skin and it's enduring a little too long. You know, but mostly emotions kind of just pass after, you know, a little bit, you know, after a half hour, an hour, whatever it is. So if your emotions are, a, let's call it like a radar tracking system for your life, kind of telling you, you know, like when you feel happy, it kind of tells you nothing's wrong. When you feel love, it tells you that someone you really like is near. When you feel fearful, it tells you you're under threat. 
when you feel sad, it tells you things aren't really working out the way you hoped. You want that functional architecture, that emotional architecture to give you that thumbs up, thumbs down about the quality of your life and your daily events and what's happening to you. Yeah, I appreciate that explanation. And I know you probably get this a lot. And since I've been uh, taking a master's in positive psychology, people sometimes in conversations associate it with just pure happy emotions and no negative ones. So, and I know you, especially with your book, you embrace the dark or the, again, no judgment, negative emotions. And your answer does show the same. So I wasn't going to talk about this, but you're making me think about it because I'm thinking about money and happiness. So you're, you're talking about these underlying emotions, letting them pass. And I think that really sets a frame for many people. In the research and positive psychology, we talk about the happiness set point. And the reason why I want to bring about this because we talk about money. And I guess first, let's talk about the, uh, let's go to happiness set point. Do we have innate baseline levels of happiness that for the most part, defined our levels of happiness or are experiencing happy moments? To an extent, uh, let's call it a set range and I'll explain what that is to people. Your happiness comes about because of a variety of different causes. Some of it is, do you have favorable life circumstances? Some of it, you know, are just, are things going well for you? But some of it's also your genetic makeup. Right. Some people's, you know, happiness dial is turned a little bit higher and some slightly lower. People don't really like hearing that, though, because they think of that as sort of like this, this genetic prison sentence where you're locked in this cell. So really, it's a range. So, you know, your range is pretty typically you feel X amount of happiness. You know, if we could quantify it, let's say, you know, your kind of default normally is about a six out of 10 on happiness. And mine might be a 7 out of 10. Someone else's might be a 5.5 out of 10, right? There's a little bit of individual variation. And we go up and down depending on our daily events. But, you know, a few people, they're, you know, set a little bit more negatively. And that has some evolutionary advantages as well, right? I always say you don't want an optimist working in the control tower when you're flying. You know, you, you want someone that's a little bit worried, a little bit detail-oriented. So having a few of those types of people, you know, actually might be beneficial for us as a group, even though it might not be as pleasant for that person individually. So the interesting thing is, it's a lot like setting your thermostat. Um, you know, you, you set the heat in your house or the, the air conditioning in your house. That's how our emotions work. You sort of experience a high, maybe something, you know, my daughter got married one time, and it was a pretty great day. It would seem strange if I still right now today felt that same happiness that I've been had been feeling it consistently for the last four years. I mean, you, you would think what's wrong with him? Why is he so elated? That doesn't make sense in this context. He, he's acting like his daughter just got married. So what happens is we naturally adapt back down to sort of this set point or the set range. And then when bad things happen, we dip down. And by and large, we come back up to somewhere in that set range. That, that's sort of our default mechanism. You know, some really extreme things can happen that sort of shake that up or make that a little more difficult. But mostly the little things like parking tickets or trouble finding a parking spot are mild dips and we adapt back. It's really functional for us to be able to do that. Okay, so yeah. And I think it's good to set, again, set the stage for this happy, what is this outcome of happiness before we talk about the link between money? And maybe can you explain, I guess, from a well-being or happiness perspective, the two different, would you say, types of well-being? One is that wedding example. In the moment, I feel really good. And then the more life evaluation side. So can you just explain those and talk about how they help us experience more happiness? Sure. I mean, not to get too metaphysical on everyone, but whatever you are, you know, you're some identity probably living in this body, right? You. Yeah. You're experiencing the world and you're experiencing it through different types of channels. You know, so one is sensory channels. You're experiencing it through sight and sound and touch and, and so forth. You're experiencing it emotionally. And we talked about that. Your emotions are like a radar tracking system. You're also experiencing it cognitively. That is, you're making all these evaluations. And, and it's really complicated how we think, but you're evaluating what's going on now based on what's happened in the past, what you expected to happen, what you desire to happen, what is happening to other people. So, you know, your brain is like this mental abacus that's really doing these calculations constantly. 
so, you know, one part of happiness is having a mental evaluation of life that's sort of like, yeah, things are pretty satisfying. However, I arrived at that. And then the other one is sort of, I feel joyful, enjoyment, good, enthusiasm, you know, or some of those positive emotions. Okay. So with that evaluation of our happiness and in those joy and those emotions, where, if any, does money come into play? Well, it definitely comes into play in so many complicated ways. So here's where I think we should just start big. I'm going to start with this caveat. It's really difficult to talk about research on money and happiness because people already hold strong opinions about the topic. If you brought me in and I was the world's you know, leading expert on black holes collapsing, your listeners don't have a strong opinion. They're not like, oh, well, you know what I think about black holes collapsing? You know, I think they just don't have any opinion. It's outside of their range of expertise. But because we're talking about psychology, something that everyone has, people have personal experience with it. So maybe they're like, I did feel pretty good when I bought a pair of shoes. Or I do notice that I want more money. So they do have opinions. So if I said, hypothetically, money definitely doesn't buy happiness, or hypothetically, money definitely does buy happiness, I'm going to alienate some portion of your audience because they want me to say the thing that they already think. And I can tell you, I've done this with journalists, you know, have just asked me question after question until I say the thing they want. And then they're like, great, I'll print that. So I'm going to give you a big answer. So I want everyone to know that, you know, there's going to be a little something here for everyone. The money haters can walk away with a a little smug look on their face and the money lovers can pat themselves on the back for their good thinking, you know, so I'm going to give a little gift to everyone. There is, and this isn't often talked about, kind of a big difference between psychologists and economists. Both of us are social scientists, but historically economists have said money and happiness go together. How could it not? You look at studies of unemployment. As soon as people are unemployed and they don't have income anymore, they tend to be kind of miserable. They, as economists, really look at externalities. They want to see that people are comfortable, that people are secure, that people have meaningful work, that people can be productive and so forth. Psychologists are far more interested in internalities what people make of a particular situation, our interpretations, our filters, our value, things like that. And so in part, we've arrived at slightly different conclusions because you find a little bit more anti-materialism, anti-money leaning in the psychological literature. But here's my take. Yeah, money buys a bit of happiness. So that's it. I'm not Mind you, I'm not saying it's the most important thing for happiness. I'm not saying it's the only route to happiness. I'm not even saying it buys very, very much happiness. And we can, this is where we get into all the, the nice caveats. But yeah, it does. And here's generally why. We can talk more about how, but here's generally why. Money is just this abstract thing that you exchange for the stuff you care about. So if you replace the word money with the words, the stuff you care about, it's probably logical that it would lead to some amount of happiness. So money, you know, you you can donate it to charity, you can spend it on a Lamborghini, you can put it in the bank and feel secure, you can use it for retirement, you can pay for your kids to go to college. I mean, there's loads of different ways to use money and the way we use money kind of matters. Yeah. Okay. So I, I really like your differentiation between the like the economist and the psychologist from the external to the internal. And it really seems like even ourselves, when you talk about the two different types of people maybe listening, they're like, yeah, money buys happiness or money doesn't. Or it's my, I guess, more meaning in life and doing the, the most important thing in life that really matters. So, but I like that differentiation. I wonder, because like you said, exchange money with buying the stuff that you care about. At times, do you think that can act as a distraction to what we really care about? And what I mean by that is we like dopamine rushes. We like that feel good. And money has been attributed to doing that as well. So I guess at times, this idea of, I guess that would be psychological, as we feel good, can money be a false indication that we're buying stuff on important things that matter? 
It's a great question. I think this is a tricky aspect of money and part of where the, the money is toxic belief comes from. And that is money is just something that you can exchange for the stuff you care about. So if I said to every listener here, I'll give you a free $10,000, Canadian or American, take your pick. Would you want that? If you really thought the money was toxic and awful, you would say, no, definitely do not put that in my bank account. But my instinct tells me that most people would say, yeah, I'll take it. Because they view money as a desirable medium for getting the other stuff. But once you start attending to that, you can start focusing on the money, as you're suggesting, and get distracted. So the acquisition of the money, like, yeah, I got a decent amount of money and I was able to send my kid to college. Ah, but what if I got even more money and I could send my next kid to a better college? What if I got even more money and we could take nicer vacations? What if I got more money and I could buy a house at the beach? And now you've principally geared your life towards the acquisition of money rather than the enjoyment of the relationships or the trips to the beach or, or whatever it is. And we find that in research. We have people rate, how important do you think money is to life? And how important do you think love is? Most people kind of think both are important and they're mildly happy. The people who say love is so important and I don't care that much about money, they're the happiest. The people who say money is the most important thing and love doesn't matter are miserable. Yeah, wow, very interesting. And so can I ask, what was the demographic of that research? Of that particular one? You might not know offhand, but... Yeah, I would have to look it up. I mean, it's either going to be college students or an international study, probably of college students. Yeah, okay. You know, and the interesting thing about that is I was talking to this uh, author, Oliver Berkman, last week, and he really has this really good book called 4,000 Weeks. Basically, it's where all, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he talked about from his perspective of happiness is like, to those people who just focus on money, he's like, from what, what he has read and research he has read is you can interchange with that big focus on money and not love with even... Uh, like a person aspiring to be the most Zen master in the world, like no money, but just trying to be Zen and experience blissful life. And he's like, for him, what he's realizing is it's not actually money in itself. Rather, it's always pushing something into the future. Like I'm never living in the present. And I wonder if money can do that to us, meaning that people who don't embrace love, I can only imagine love. I don't know the research around love, but love is experienced in the moment where often money is always like, how's the next $10,000, the next $10,000. So I, I don't know if it's a question, more of a comment of, I guess, do you think it's that idea that money's always pushing this happiness into the future and we just keep adapting to the marginal increases? I certainly think there is something to that, right? There is a tension between how much time we spend thinking about the future in general versus how much time we spend on the present. And in general, just so you know, we spend a lot more time thinking about the future than the past. And mostly when we think about the past, it's so that we can learn something or get a lesson to use for the future. So the future takes up a huge amount of our time mentally. It's a big portion of that. So yeah, it, I mean, I do think these people that just like, ah, oh, but when I get that speedboat, that's when I'll be happy. And so I'm just going to work like a dog, but not realizing, well, that is your life. Your life is just working in this fantasy as this happy speedboat at the end of the emotional rainbow, right? That I don't think is necessarily true. And you know what? Maybe I should put a TED talk you did that's along the lines we're talking about, which we will get to the $75,000 mark, but we're talking about the future. Is it correct, according to your TED talk, that your happiest days are behind you? It's, I mean, that was a, an intentionally provocative title. You know, I definitely had a lot of pushback from that because it sounds like I'm saying quit living, you know, like it's not going to get any better. But the point for people who have seen or will see the talk is that we can remember past pleasant events and that when you do so, it manufactures happiness in the present. So when you get together and you, you know, tell funny, embarrassing stories with your buddies or, or whatever it is, you're actually experiencing the real emotions you were experiencing back then. The embarrassment you feel in the moment isn't all that different than the embarrassment you feel then. Those are both legitimate feelings of embarrassment. And so people spend so much time thinking about the future, like if only I can do X, Y, and Z, then I will be happy. But it's far more reliable to say, 
I can identify X, Y, and Z in my past where I was definitely happy. I can discuss them. I can remember them. I can memorialize them. I can look through photo albums and I can manufacture that happiness in me right now. Yeah, it's so interesting doing that. I used to play hockey as a young kid and we put together a team of players who it's been over 10 years we played together and we had a game two nights ago and we all just sat and reminisced of our old times and it it was just like instant urges of our rushes of happiness. So I would just live that and it was felt good. Okay, so you've done a really good job painting this happiness, some of the elements that go into happiness, how we experience happiness. I want to go back to that $75,000 mark and not necessarily get fixated on the the number, but the idea behind this idea that money gives us happiness up to a point. So what's happening in the bottom part? And then once we achieve that point, whatever the number is, what happens at that point as well? So to explain it to everyone, I mean, you're talking about I always hate this, you know, the the economic phrase, the curvilinear, you know, marginal utility of money. The idea of diminishing returns, you know, if you take person X and you give them a $5,000 bump in their income, that'll be met with X amount increase of happiness. But what if you gave them a 10,000, a 20,000, a 50,000 bump? Does it just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger? And what a number of studies show is that for people who live on almost no money, increasing their income really matters. It seems to be increasing their quality of life. You know, going from no dollars a year to $10,000 a year, it's a pretty dramatic difference. Going from $90,000 a year to $100,000 is a very small difference, right? You're, you know, this kind of upper middle class person without much change in your quality of life. So you're right, different studies find where, where's that tipping point? Some say it's about 60, some say 72, 75, you know, but it, it seems to be kind of in that range. Let's call it 60 to 70, 60 to 75. What I find interesting is the interpretation of that. So again, we get these camps, people who love money and people who don't love money. The people who don't love money, the anti-materialists say that shows you that money doesn't matter. Because it only matters a little bit, and then it starts leveling off. To that group, I would say almost no one in the world makes $75,000 a year. If you believe that, you're probably a well-to-do middle-class person in an industrialized nation. Because most of the world is making far less than that. The family income, even of fairly wealthy countries, isn't $75,000 a year. So that suggests to me that people would generally do well trying to make a little bit more money, that it will pay back a happiness dividend. For those lucky enough to make, you know, 75,000 or or have, you know, pretty good, you know, white collar jobs, and then that is many, many people. It doesn't mean, oh, you should quit working. Like, you know, don't ask for a raise because a raise isn't going to do anything for you. But it's just that it diminishes it's not going to make as big of an impact. So you're probably living at a level, and hopefully you're not sacrificing everything to work. You're probably living at a level of income where you're comfortable enough, you have savings enough, you don't necessarily need to be indebted. And then you could start thinking about, well, what is it I value? What's the impact I want to have? You know, those types of things. Of course, poor people can think of those same questions. I don't mean to suggest they can't have impact or meaning either. It's just that money will make a bigger difference for them. Right. And, you know, I like how you point out that most of the world is not making that amount. And as someone born in Canada, I feel privileged every day, the fact that I don't have to think about where I'm going to get my next meal or what shelter. And I can have these conversations, whereas a lot of the world, to your point, can't have these conversations. Yeah. And sort of my mind's going to me and your research in like Calcutta and some of the poor places. And I want to ask a question about that. But so to summarize you, what you're saying is just it's a marginal return. As we make whatever that set point is after that point, there's a marginal return on our happiness. And I'll just add a quick caveat, which is what that set point is, or what that kind of turn tipping point is where, it's, where it starts diminishing, that varies by region. So it's actually a lot higher than 75,000, I think, in Australia, and it's a lot lower in Costa Rica. You know, I think in Costa Rica, it's about 35000 you know, and some of that has to do with purchasing price, cost of living, and, and so forth. Whereas I can imagine New York City would be on the higher end. Right, exactly. 
So I haven't actually read any of your research or if there is on this, but I'm just actually curious on, so if we get above that tipping point, whatever the number is, and again, because you use the word evaluation on that, would you foresee that people who have time to reflect on the meaning that they're deriving out of their life, the meaning they're doing with their work, could start to see, a, I guess, a larger impact of more money when they are feeling like their time's well spent. Because I've, I've read some of your papers where it says like a, a flip side to making more money is you're spending more time at work and not in social relationships and so forth. So I don't know if you have any comment on that. If someone who has some more time to reflect and just understand, make sure they're in this life uh, navigating in somewhat the right direction. That's one of the interesting things is that for, for many types of work in the, the middle class, upper middle class kind of salary range, it requires increasing amounts of time. You, you know, you're shackled to your phone. You've got to answer emails at midnight. You've got to do 60-hour, 70-hour weeks. You've got to go in early to avoid rush hour. It starts kind of mushrooming out and taking over your life in ways that really do pose a threat to your quality of life, to undercut sometimes your health, but certainly your happiness. So you know, the, the magic trick is if you wanted to make that amount of money, but still have some autonomy over your own time, you know, have a, a type of job or work that didn't interfere with your relationships, leisure, health, and so forth. Because I think we go back to this idea of money. We didn't say this word, but it can be a distraction where I see it all the time is we're distracting ourselves by chasing this money and ignoring so many different things. And there's no, just when we're spending the best hours of our day, Monday to Friday, checking the phone on the weekends, trying to work to get that next money, to get to the next savings point. I feel like we, we, we get distracted and life just goes right by past us. Yeah. I'll tell you, this is a pretty dramatic story, but um, and it's short, but it's one that quite inspires me. I'm, I'm friends with a guy and he was in academia at an Ivy League school and he was working his way up through the administration, you know, you could see that he was being groomed for, you know, the president of Harvard or one of the types of very prestigious, pretty good positions. And when he was young, about 32 years old, he got a sabbatical and he went on sabbatical and he worked on an organic farm. And he said, what am I doing? I don't think I'm any happier at work than I am working on this farm. And at the end of the day on this farm, I'm done with my work. But when I was in administration, it would spill over into my weekends and my evenings and that's just not what I want for myself. And so that year, he calculated what he needed to live on, and he inflation adjusted it for the rest of his life. And he said, that's what I'm going to shoot for. And he said, I'll never take a trip to Europe. I'll never purchase a new car. Basically, I want a one-story small house that I can afford. I want to buy used books. I want to keep some bees in the backyard, and I think I could be happy. He is now in his late 70s. He might be 80, and he has done that every single year. And, it, and it's a very small amount of money. I mean, I think it was like at that time, like $30,000 a year. And he's adjusted it for inflation every year. But like he sacrificed that for a life that he thought would be fulfilling. And I asked him, you know, what was it worth it? He said, absolutely. I, I mean, I've, I've had a, a deeply satisfying life. And now that's an extreme example, of course, but I think it's instructive. Yeah, it is. And it makes me think of the, the fighter movement. I'm sure you're familiar with the fighter movement. Financially independent, retire early. So people who do this try to make as much as money as they can. They really, really push for it, sacrifice, and then they retire on a lean amount of money in some cases. What would you say, though, that we change? Our desires change. Maybe our pursuits change. Significance, what brings us significance in life changes. And I've seen some people now, I've heard people talking who have done this fighter thing. They retired early. And now they realize, oh, wait a second, what am I to do now? Almost underestimating the meaning that work brought to them. So how does that relate to this level of happiness? So I guess it's how much even does the structure of work, which can be a detriment of many, like if we're doing overdoing it, but how much does that actually bring to our happiness? And in some cases, are we running from something when we try to retire early? That's one of the things that really complicates this question of does money buy happiness? Because we act as if money is just this pile of material sitting on the road somewhere. <laughs> but it's not. We don't just stumble upon it. We're earning it. And we're earning it in a context where we have real relationships that matter to us. We make an impact sometimes that we're proud of. And that complicates it. So now it's not, we can't pretend that work is just about money. And, you know, I, I hear a lot of, you know, sort of in the blogosphere and ads and things that sort of assume that people hate their jobs. You know, like, here's how to really, you know, get the most out of your job. 
But I think there's a lot that people like about their jobs, even if they have some complaints. And you're right. It's a lot of that structure. It offers you something to look forward to. It structures your day. It puts your your strengths and talents and skills to work. Sometimes it aligns well with your values. It allows you to connect with others. It gives you novel experiences, gives you a sense of growth as you advance. Those are all really terrific benefits. So in part, when people become unemployed and become miserable, it's not just because they lost a paycheck. It's because they lost all of those other psychological benefits as well. So with your research that took you to, I think it's the most northern town in Greenland or northern inhabitable place in India, in Calcutta, what did you learn about people who have small amounts of money or in some cases, very, very small amounts like the slums in Calcutta? What did you learn about life and happiness? And yeah, what what teachings did you get? So I'm, I'm glad you're asking about it. This is one of my favorite pieces of research I've ever done. I was inspired by my father, who you mentioned before. He had done a study in the early 80s where he went and asked the richest people in the world how happy they are. These are people who are worth, at that time, $125 million or more. Oh, in the 80s? Yeah. So, you know, really, really rich people. And they were pretty happy. And they said, mostly, I didn't start out to make money. Money was a byproduct of something I thought I was doing that was cool. You know, I I thought that making frozen dinners would actually give you know, be easier on people who are cooking and allow families more time together. Whether you think that sounds noble, you know, frozen dinners or not, that guy did and ended up making oodles of cash. And he said, oh, and you know, that gives me a sense of security. I donate to charity. I employ people like it all feels good. So I was like, wow, my dad really looked at the happiest people. I are the richest people. I'd like to go and look at some not very rich people because they're overlooked. As I suggested before, there, you know, so many studies are just done with college students. No offense to college students. And we want to get out of the laboratory, though, and into the real world. So I thought, who are some people that live a materially simple life? Uh, the Amish, you know, the Amish farmers. So I went and, and stayed with them and interviewed them. You know, these hunters that live up in the northern tip of Greenland, very, very materially simple life, and homeless people and poor people. So I I went to Kolkata. I spent, you know, I don't know if it was a year across different trips there, but, you know, spent a lot of time interviewing sex workers, what we would call pavement dwellers, people who are living on railway platforms or sidewalks people who live in slum areas, sometimes illegal shanties, sometimes kind of more permanent slum areas that are wired with electricity and have been around for you know a decade or, or more. And as I was preparing to go, this is where I first started hearing from the two camps. Some people were like, you can save your trip to Calcutta. They're miserable. They don't have Harry Potter books. You know, They don't have vacuum cleaners. They don't have any of the stuff that makes life worthwhile. We just know they're miserable. And another group of people are saying, they're the only truly happy people in the world. You know, this kind of very romantic view of the poor, like the rich could never be happy and only the poor can. And I was like, well, why don't we just let the poor speak for themselves? So I went and the very first day that I stepped into a slum area was just absolutely illuminating to me. You know, I I literally had to step over an open sewer. Hygienic conditions were awful. There was stray dogs around. There was no privacy There was a goat, there was like mud everywhere, you know, people's toothbrushes were on these crumbling walls, flies were on them, there was no running water, you know, everyone shared a single hand pump for water, you know, you had to dry your your laundry, and I don't even know how they were doing their laundry out, you had to cook inside your house, and the house is poorly ventilated, so you're basically cooking in your bedroom on a kerosene stove, and the whole inside of the wall is blackened from the fumes, I mean, it looked not like an enviable place to live. But the very first thing that happened was these kids came running up and they had a trophy with them. And it was a soccer trophy. And I was like, what is this? And and my translator I was working with said, oh, well, like the slum just played this child soccer tournament against the other slums and they won. And I was like, okay, I didn't expect that. That's a little bit interesting. And they had a, you know, like a little religious puja, you know, a festival going on. And I thought, okay, so there's more to the story. They definitely live in these kind of deplorable physical conditions. 
but their social fabric seems fairly well intact. They have, you know, sports, they have religion, they're gossiping, they're enjoying one another, they have a pretty rich social life. And then when I started interviewing people, I really got even more in the story, you know, one of my very favorite interview questions, and, and I recommend that that you and everyone just ask people this. What did you do yesterday? You can learn an enormous amount by asking someone what they did the day before. So I would ask people, you know, what did you do yesterday? And this allowed me to sidestep just looking at them as if they're a poor person or, you know, just let them tell me what a day looks like. And one woman, for example, said, my husband is a day laborer and he hides some money in the wall of our house, but I know where he hides it. So sometimes I steal some and he drinks a little bit and he never notices. So what I did yesterday is I stole a little bit of his money and me and a friend went to the movies. And I thought there's something I never would have guessed, right? That they're going to the cinema to see a movie. I said, oh, what movie did you see? She said, oh, I don't know. We didn't watch the movie. We went for the air conditioning. And, you know, Calcutta is a pretty hot place. And I thought, wow, so here, here's such a great kind of mix of all of the happiness lessons. She went with a friend because, you know, social relationships are important to happiness, but circumstances matter. It's really hot and humid out. And she wants the ability to control that. And the way she can control it is by going somewhere with air conditioning, something that money buys you. And I thought that was pretty cool. The story fills me with different emotions and, and the fact of like, it's really neat to see, like you said, the social fabric that they've created to instill, you know, it sounds like to her, it was a good day, despite the conditions you explained. But then as you're explaining those conditions, I think how, and this is more of an opinion coming out, how in a world where we're trying to get on Mars, do we have these types of conditions that people have to live and this inequality that exists is just sometimes uncomprehendable. So can I address that real quick? Because I, I did do a study on inequality, and there are many studies on income inequality. Yeah, please. Income inequality turns out to be pretty bad for society. So my doctoral dissertation was on happiness in Denmark. And many of your listeners, if they've ever opened a paper or scrolled through news, have probably seen some headline like, Denmark's the happiest country in the world. It tends to top out on, on these happiness lists. So we got a demographically representative sample, totally mirrors urban, rural, young, old, educated, you know, all, all of it, completely representative of Denmark. And we looked at their happiness. We did the same thing with the United States and we compared them. And what we did is we looked at the richest Danes and the richest Americans and the poorest Danes and the poorest Americans. When we say Denmark's the happiest country in the world, rich Danes don't look any happier than rich Americans. People who are flourishing economically in both societies are the same amount of happy. That is, if you're a middle-class person, you probably are about as happy as a Dane. Where you see the real difference is at the lower end of the economic spectrum. So the poor in the United States were more worried and experiencing less pleasure. The poor in Denmark were pretty similar to the rich in Denmark. So what that suggests to me is either Danish society is providing more equally for all of its citizens. You know, you might look at things like their, uh, you know, social safety net kind of programs. Or America is not particularly well providing equally for all of its citizenry. And we find this time and again that where there is high disparities in income, there's less collective happiness. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. And so when you say collective, you clearly said that the poorest in Denmark were happier than the poorest in America. What about the perception, the richest Denmark? I guess my question is, the more gap there is, could the richer people also have a little less happiness because they can witness this income inequality? They don't seem to. So if you look at um, like some South American nations, for example, you, you might have some pretty extreme, you know, disparities, you know, you're yeah, more recently, of course, you have a burgeoning middle class, but historically, you've only had two classes, upper class, lower class. But you find upper class people faring well on average. But again, it's because money buys them some safety, some protection, lack of harassment from the police, any number of things. And this is an important part, I think, of understanding the effect of income on happiness. We can talk about our individual income, you know, does money make you happy? Does it make me happy? 
but we can also talk about it collectively as a group. If you live in a rich nation, that turns out to be pretty good because what a rich nation means is more green spaces, less corrupt police forces, less incidents of war, more gender equality, better educational and healthcare systems. So money can translate to happiness in that it's providing for better circumstances, you know, better opportunities and more equality in those kinds of societies. Yeah, you make me think of, um, I think he was this, the hospitality, um, for Airbnb, whatever they call your chief hospitality person, but he went around the world to, to experience what collective effervescence, like going to festivals and concerts, and he just like reported on this collective feeling and you're making me think about that. Yeah, if you have a flourishing society where everybody can participate, I wonder if you, the happiness, like I guess your research does show that, is that everybody's feeling that and maybe more people are in the green space and you're socializing with more people and that just leads to a potentially happier community societies. When people emigrate, for example, to Canada, they become happier. Now, that could be because they're coming from a situation that was, you know, particularly bad, you know, El Salvador or Afghanistan or somewhere that they were under threat. But the truth is just arriving in Canada, you know, kind of makes people a bit happier. Now, that's not to say that the countries like the United States or Canada don't have problems, you know, of course. And, and I don't mean to suggest that when I say less corrupt police forces, I mean exactly that. I don't mean there's a total absence of corruption or that there are no problems. There certainly is in some degree, but yeah. And I pulled out of your research, actually, a saying that you just, like, I just want to speak to this idea of a nation being able to provide more. And you quote it, people with higher incomes tend to have lighter prison sentences for the same crime, better mental and physical health outcomes, and a greater longevity and lower infant mortality rates, which again, we can just make a very broad assumption that that's going to lead people to be safer, feel safer, which of course makes them feel happier. So yeah, this income equality is something that always, another day for another full conversation, but it, it's interesting to hear that Danish study. I think that's really insightful that the poorest in Dane or Denmark felt overall similar to the richest. Absolutely. Well, I want to be respectful for your time. A question that I've tended to ask everyone at the end is, you may have seen adaptations of this question. It's that idea of you're at the end of life, whatever life expectancy is at that point. And you've got a few more weeks left of life and you're sitting on this front porch, could be anywhere in the world. I believe you live in Portland, could be Portland, could be anywhere, but you're, you're looking at this meadow, a mountain, ocean, whatever is making you feel calm and peaceful. And you're tasked with this task to write a letter to your children's children on what you learned is a key or an ingredient to have a happy, healthy relationship with money. I think the idea, and we probably didn't articulate well enough when we talked about the set point or the set range, but you adapt, right? You adapt back. And, and that's functional because it means I can move to Toronto or New York and adapt. I could get married or divorced and adapt. And if we lacked that capacity to adapt, that would be very bad for us. But it also means you adapt to increasing income. You know, back when you were in college, if you went to college, you probably lived in, you know, something pretty simple, you know, you, you slept on an inflatable bed. In my case, I lived in a van in the parking lot. And then, you know, further along in your career, you buy your first house and then suddenly you buy a second house and it's much nicer. And then suddenly you're going on vacations or you're taking an overseas vacation and you adapt upwards and upwards and upwards. And I think it's easy for all of us to lose sight of the fact that the really meaningful Things don't need to cost anything. I draw, I rock climb, I take walks with my wife. You know, we tell stories. Most of that stuff is pretty inexpensive or free. You know, take your dog to the park. Sure, a dog costs a little bit of money. But, you know, you don't have to be spending as much money as you think you do for a good life. I really, really appreciate that answer because we've asked people, explain a day in your retirement. And it's often exercise, go for a walk, do some volunteering work that matters to me, spend time with my kids. And then we're like, well, how much do you think that day costs? Like, oh, not very much. Yeah. But we uh, just waited till we're 65 for this. I mean, I'll just tell you real quick that when you started asking me the question, I thought you were going to say, you only have two weeks left. How would you spend your day? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was going to say, I would spend my day exactly as I spent today. I would go on a walk with my wife, play with a cat, draw, you know, exercise a little. 
like I, I would just do that. And actually all of that stuff was free. Well, I really thank you for your time and insight and all the work you're doing in this area of happiness and money and the relationship or I guess the link between money and happiness. So thank you so much. For listeners who are interested in finding out more about yourself, maybe you can direct them to your website, your books, and just what you're up to. Yeah, absolutely. They could get a hold of me at intentionalhappiness.com or robertdiener.com. Those both go to the exact same website. And I think the book they might most like on this topic is Happiness, Unlocking the Mysteries of Psychological Wealth. Yes, I, I really enjoyed that book. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Most Hated Effort podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Until next time, have yourself a great week.